0: Let's turn then to Luke chapter 14. We'll begin reading today in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, a very familiar portion of Scripture. We'll read the remainder of the passage. The Lord has a particular set of these verses that we want to bring to you today, but we'll read all of these. It says in verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied him, that is, Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore Let him hear. I want to talk to you today about counting and considering the costs of discipleship. Counting and considering the costs of discipleship. As Jesus was making his way here in the 14th chapter of Luke, it tells us that a great crowd. Was with him. And we know and remember the Lord's earthly ministry. It began in relative obscurity. And then, as he began to teach and perform miracles and heal the lame and feed multitudes with just a little bit of food and calm the storm and begin to perform all these miracles, that he naturally gathered great crowds around him. And here, He is at that point, and there are great crowds that accompany him, that go with him, that travel with him and his closest followers. One day very soon from this 14th chapter of Luke, very soon from this day, Jesus knew that there would not be a single person who would be with him. The crowds will have dispersed. Even his own inner circle of followers will have left him. Peter will deny Him. Jesus knows that day is coming, but on this particular day, there was a great crowd of people that were following with Him. On this day, this great crowd of people were listening and interested and concerned with what Jesus had to say. And Jesus here, not taking a page, out of the modern-day church builder's playbook, turns around and begins to tell them of these costs of discipleship, what it costs to follow him. On this day, Jesus pauses, and he stops the train. And in my mind's eye, I can almost imagine this day as this troop of people are traveling along the road, and Jesus, knowing in his mind In his divinity, knowing the hearts of man, as John tells us, he knew what was in the heart of men. He knows what, by the way, is in yours. And as this group of people traveling down the road, and and then all of a sudden Jesus stops. And when Jesus stops, the crowd stops. When Jesus halted, the crowd halted. So in some ways, they were following him. They were with Him. They were near Him. They wanted to know what He had to say. But Jesus turns around and He lays out for them the true cost of following Him. He turns to them and begins to teach. John Gill says this on this passage, that He, that is Jesus, turned Himself to the company that was behind and said unto them with a grave and stern countenance, looking closely at them, and in the most solemn manner delivered what is hereafter related. Jesus' teaching here assumes that there were some in the crowd who were not true followers. He assumes that. He not only assumes it, but He knows it. Jesus knows this crowd. He knew how many there were. Jesus could have told you at that very point, how many hairs were present on the heads of all of those crowd of that crowd He knew absolutely everything there was to know about them and he stops and he says and he lays out these costs of discipleship There are yet today still crowds who appear to be following Christ but sadly many of these crowds are not challenged in the way that Jesus challenged this crowd on this day. The modern day church builders would encourage a softer tone. They would encourage Jesus to take a different approach. Today, many of these crowds of people who seemingly are following Christ have not wrestled with the true cost of discipleship. They've not really counted them. They've not really considered them. But Jesus does not allow them to do so apart from obligating them to do it. If these crowds, if someone in this crowd went from this day forward and did not consider what Jesus said, it was not Jesus' fault. It was their refusal to count and consider the cost of discipleship, the cost, the admission price into heaven. The cost that must be paid if one is to be a disciple of Christ, if one is to hear on that day that is coming for all of us, come and enter in, you blessed of my Father. If you want to hear that, and you do not want to hear what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, I never knew you, you will have to count, consider, and pay the costs. So what are they? We're going to look into that. But sadly, again, many people say they're not challenged with these portions of Scripture. The false prophet of the day will encourage the crowd to remain. Jesus encouraged the fake follower to leave. The false prophet of today will encourage the crowd with false hope that God loves them no matter what. That's the common refrain of the false prophet. Jesus loves you no matter what. There are no costs. Jesus warned the crowd that they must repent or they would perish. That's what Jesus said from the beginning of his ministry. That's what John the Baptist said as he prepared the way for the Lord to come. Repent or perish. Live or die. Life or death joy or sorrow, comfort or pain. Jesus lays it out very plainly and says, all must repent or perish. And I don't care who you are. I don't care what your last name is. I don't care how far along in the pharisaical uh, uh, political system you might be. I don't care how much Old Testament you might know. I don't care what your genealogy is back to Abraham. I don't care about any of that. Jesus says, repent or perish. The false prophet of today will smile at the crowd and assume that their sin is nothing to be concerned about while Jesus endured the agony of the cross and took upon Himself the wrath of His Father. Many preachers and ministers today would not stop along the side of the road when a great crowd is following and say, are you? Serious? Are you counting, considering, and paying the price? If not, then you are not a follower of mine. Jesus said it, I think, three times. Cannot be my disciple if these things are not paid. I want to bring these words to you today. I want you to hear them as closely as possible as the crowd heard them. I pray that the Spirit of God would empower this message in your mind and in your heart that my speaking here today would be the Spirit speaking to your heart and convincing you and that the words as shocking as they are would grab your attention and shake you out of the slumber that this life can lead you to. And to show you at least a little bit of the eternity that we're heading for. And to see this life in a new light and to ensure and to examine your own heart. Have I paid the price? Have I paid the cost? Have I counted them? Have I considered them ever in my life? Because you see, if you are outside the mercy of God in Christ You are in danger today of eternal destruction and separation. And your only hope, listen, your only hope is to become a follower of Christ. And Jesus here gives us some costs that must be paid if we are truly to be a follower of Christ. And I feel it's important to say here at the outset, don't think for a minute that paying these costs merits the blessing of salvation. That somehow by paying them, you earn your way into heaven. That somehow by paying these costs that Jesus will line out here. That somehow by doing that, Jesus and God the Father will be impressed with you and say, my, what a wonderful young man or woman you are and let you into heaven because of your strength and your choice. That's not what this is. There's... There are costs, there are conditions, and those conditions are these costs. But those costs are, are not such costs that give or grant you merit at all. It's still all the mercy and grace of God in Christ the Lord. But I want to look at these pas- this passage this morning, and I want to challenge you to examine your heart Jesus begins in verse 26 and says, if anyone comes after me, anyone. The cost of discipleship is universal. It's not easy for some and hard for others. If anyone comes after me, this is the price. These are the things that you must pay if you are to come after me, it is not as though becoming a disciple, becoming a follower, being saved, have, be, coming to the place of repentance and faith. It isn't as though, and sometimes we think it is with our natural observation. Well, this is easy for some and hard for others. Some have to pay this degree of a cost, some have to leave all and follow Christ, but not all do. Some have to pay these deep costs in their life in order to follow Christ, but others don't. But that doesn't seem to match up with what Jesus says here. He says, if anyone comes after me, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how much you don't have. He says, if anyone comes after me, this places us all on the, the eternal level playing field, does it not? If anyone comes after me, you must pay these costs. You must count them, you must consider them, and then you must pay them. So as we begin, let us not forget what Jesus said and use that word, any Don't care if you've been in church all your life and you know the Scriptures well. Or if you've never been in church a day of your life, but God in His mercy and grace brings to you the message of His Son through a missionary, through a Bible, through some other avenue that He brings to your mind and heart enough of the gospel message that you repent of your sin and you follow Christ. This set of costs are the same. They will play out differently, I know. It will look differently in your life than it does mine, perhaps. But it will be the same cost. There's not a standard of belief and faith in Christ for some that's lower or higher than others. These are the costs. If anyone's going to come after me, this is what you're going to have to do. And I ask you today, do you want to go after Christ? I hope you do. Oh, I hope you do. I, I hope in your heart that that is the direction of your life, that you want it to go, that you realize there's nothing else in this world for you. Whether you're young, you're middle-aged, or you're old, I pray that that is the guiding direction of your heart to follow Christ and that you pay and count and consider the cost that he outlines and the costs are three That he says specifically, verse 26, and these are hard words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What are we to do with these words of Christ? Is He telling us to hate people? Hate even those nearest to us. How do we reconcile that with the other teachings in Scripture? How do we manage to to reconcile what He is saying here and the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself? How do we bring these two things together? Matthew 10.37, speaking really of the same circumstance, Matthew writes it this way. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now again, surely if the greatest commandment is to love God and love others, Jesus cannot be intending that we are to literally, in that sense, hate our fathers, mothers, husbands, brothers, sisters, all of these other people, and even ourselves. Sometimes the word hate is used hyperbolically or as hyperbole in a relative sense to express only a strong preference of one thing to another. Father and mother are to be hated in comparison with Christ. So when we hear that, when we hear Matthew and he says we are to love others less than God, we can get our minds around that. It, it certainly softens the blow, doesn't it? We, we can say, oh, okay. So God doesn't mean hate. Jesus didn't mean hate here. It can soften the blow when we understand that, especially again to soft ears of many Christians today. But we must wrestle with the fact that Luke specifically chose the word hate. We have to come to an understanding of what this means. Because if we don't, then we don't know what the cost of discipleship is. Because Jesus said, if anyone does not pay these things, cannot be my disciple. And He begins and says, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your wife, you cannot be my disciple. So when we compare Matthew 10.37 and we realize, oh, it, it really means to love less and, and we kind of move on and, and maybe that settles our heart on the issue. But we have to come to terms with what Luke meant here when he specifically chose the word hate. This is not an issue where the translators of the Bible chose to translate the word differently in Matthew and in Luke. These are two different Greek words, chosen specifically by Matthew and chosen specifically by Luke. And the word hate means a feeling of strong antagonism and dislike. Now, it's possible to love something less than something else and not hate it. But Luke uses the word hate. You know, many Christians are operating under the impression That as Christians, we are not to hate anything. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said it? Have you ever thought it? Well, as Christians, we're not to hate anything. Hate is not supposed to be in our vocabulary, some would say. Hate is the antithesis of Christianity others might teach. But it's not what Jesus taught. It's not what God has said. It's not what a biblical understanding of the cost of discipleship provide. But again, many Christians are living their lives operating under this false impression that as Christians, with their, that hate must be a complete absence in our life. But if we are to be like Christ, Christian, who is himself the express image of, Of the Father does it not stand that we must hate the things that God hates as well as loving the things that God loves? And how can you hate without loving and how can you love without hating? These are two sides of the same coin. And God has told us in Scripture in a number of places plainly that he has hatred towards certain things. And I'll just read a few. But don't take my word for it. Take God's. Deuteronomy sixteen twenty-two. Listen to what God says and then examine your heart. He says, you shall not set up a pillar or an idol, a false god in your life. You shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. Oh, he hates it. God hates it when we set up idols in our life. He does not look at it and say, oh, how unfortunate for that one. He hates it. It's what he said himself. I'm not putting words in his mouth, but neither am I taking words out of his mouth. God said in Deuteronomy, I hate it when that happens. And you flip all the way over to Revelation. Revelation. God is inspiring the Apostle John to write some letters to the churches of Asia and to Ephesus, had a lot of negative things to say. They'd really lost their way on a number of fronts. But he did commend them in one place in verse 6 of chapter 2. Yet this you have, Jesus says, this is at least you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitanes, which I also Psalm 7, right in the middle of the Bible. We've been at the beginning and we've been at the end and now here in the middle and you just run yourself a chain reference on how much God says He hates certain things. You'll be busy for a while. But in Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13, I pray a sobering set of Scriptures to those that are outside of the mercy of God. God is a righteous judge. The psalmist says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation is the word that is used there. He feels indignation every day. Every day. God is indignant. And he goes on in verse 12, if a man does not repent. Jesus said, you'll perish. The psalmist said, if a man does not repent, God will wet or sharpen his sword. He's bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So there are things that God hates. And then Luke comes to us and he's writing this, his gospel under the inspiration of God. And he says, and he remembers this day, the Lord said, you must hate. If you come to me and you don't hate these other things, you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say you can't be a good disciple. He doesn't say you can't be one of my better disciples. It's binary. It's yes or no. It's on or off. It's true or false. If you don't, you cannot be my disciple. So how do we wrestle with this? And we must Wrestle with it. When you come across something in Scripture that feels odd, that makes you question long-held ideas and beliefs, boy, it's time to dig in. It's time to get serious. It's time to begin praying. It's time to begin studying. It's time to begin challenging your own mind and heart about what you've thought about God all your life. And maybe by the time you get to the end of your study, you end up where you started. But now you are on a firmer foundation and you can use the Scripture to support your ideas rather than question them. And so here we must wrestle with it. We must get down in the dirt with this. We must, we must discover what it is that God is trying to say to us. Are we to hate someone, our loved ones even? Are we to somehow turn and hate them in order to get to heaven? I believe the answer lies in the fact that we should indeed. And here it is. I pray. I pray that God is pleased with how I have come to this and that he would, he would help us and open our hearts to understand it a little bit better. I believe the answer lies in the fact that, yes, indeed, we should hate anything. We should hate anything that would harm our relationship and fellowship with him. Don't care what it is. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. If you want to come to me, you're going to have to hate these other things if they stand between you and me. You can't bring them along with you. You can't say, God, I want to follow you, but I want to bring these other things that I love too. I want to equally love them the way I love you. And Jesus just lays it out and says, this cannot be. We should hate the loss of fellowship with God that would derive from allowing even our fathers, our mothers, our wives, our husbands, our children, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our co-workers. We should hate the loss of fellowship that would derive from allowing any of those people, anything in our own life, to become a stumbling block between us and God. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, the stress here. Is on the priority of love, as we read in Matthew 10:37, one's loyalty to Jesus must come before his loyalty to his family or even to life itself. Indeed, those who did follow Jesus against their family's desires were probably thought of as hating their families. And I thought of Liberia, the threats that Brother Bryson and I received before going over there. If you come over here, we're going to kill you. it's what they said. They didn't do it. They barely and half tried. But their complaint is this you're dividing families. You're ripping apart families, and we won't stand for it. That's the accusation. And Jesus said it, did he not? I came not to bring peace, but a sword, to set a mother against her daughter, and a father against a son. And he says this again here in Matthew 14 You want to be my follower? You want to be a disciple of me? of mine, and you're going to have to hate those other things if they stand between you and me. They're going to have to become the object of your antagonism. If this hurts your ears to hear, if this hurts your heart to think about, let me ask you this question. Because this is, this is, this is level 401 college course stuff, right? This isn't, the freshman introductory course. This is, this is the hard stuff. This is when it gets ugly. This is when it gets difficult. This is not the easy Sunday school stuff where Moses or Noah and the animals are happy on the ark and the rainbow's in the background and everybody's wonderful and somehow we forget that everybody on the planet, except for those eight, had just died. This is the deep things of God. This isn't the shallow Christianity that so infests this world today that Satan would love to substitute for the real thing. If this is hard for you to hear, please let me ask you this question. Isn't anything, isn't anything that would render Christ's death on the cross void in our lives, worthy of our hatred? isn't anything that comes between us and the Lord who stretched out His hands and let them drive the nails through them and through His feet and hung Him there on the cross, isn't anything that we allow to come into our lives that separates us from Him, isn't anything between us and Him something that we ought to go, wait a minute, Yes, I need to love them less, but if I'm allowing them in my life to keep me from Christ, Jesus ups the ante and pers- purposely uses the word hate. And I'll tell you this, when eternity ushers in and you've been there for a thousand years separated from God, you'll hate Him. You'll hate them. They kept you from God the one thing that mattered. So the cost, number one, of discipleship is this turning to God in such a way that you love, yes, nothing more, of course, nothing more than Him, and that there is even a sense of hatred for anything that would keep you separated from Him, even if it might be father, mother, husband, friend, whoever. I can only imagine, can you by the way, can you imagine the reality check that must have been hit in the heart and right and square in the eyes of any half-hearted follower of Christ when he or she heard these words? Wait a minute, Jesus, I'm, I'm here on the road. I've, I'm not at home. I've been walking, been following you. In my minds, I, I, I see Jesus pausing for just a moment before going on. This is heavy stuff. This one phrase is heavy stuff. And in my mind's eye, I, I can see Jesus pausing for just a moment before going on. I see him locking eyes with someone nearby who he knows in his heart and they know in theirs that they're not truly his followers. That they were simply tagging along out of curiosity or hopes to see some miracle, or hopes to see the the Messiah that they had thought was promised who would come and bring an earthly kingdom. These half-hearted followers were not really followers yet. They had not given their hearts fully to Christ. They were waiting to see what they wanted and expected to see, perhaps, before truly placing their trust in him before truly trusting Christ to the point that they loved nothing more and even felt the strong antagonism and dislike to anything that would separate them from him. So what about you? Do you love God more than anything else? Do you love him so much that you would even come to a place where you'd say, I hate those things that keep me from him? Oh, I hope you've been in the in the throes of spiritual warfare where you have felt something like that. God, I hate anything that keeps me from you. God, I love the world. I love my family. I love those that you've taught me. I want to love them because, Lord, I know you've commanded me to love them. But, oh, if they stand between me and you, help me pay that call. Help me understand the danger that it represents. We need to hasten along. Cost number two, he says, to bear the cross. Anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is a two-part single activity in the Christian life. To bear a cross is to follow Christ. To follow Christ is to bear a cross. They are one and together. Some attempt, by the way, to follow Christ without the other, but these things are a package deal when it comes to discipleship. When it comes to the cost of discipleship, one must bear their cross and follow Christ. What cross are you bearing today? And if you aren't bearing a cross... This might be hard to hear too. If you aren't bearing a cross, present tense, if you are not bearing your cross, you're not following Christ. You're not. And when I'm not bearing a cross, I'm not following Him. Are you trying to tell me that I can live in a world that hates God and love Him and not bear that cross? Not bear that antagonism with my master and my Lord that the world has toward him. It's time to reset our expectations on what it means to be a follower of Christ in this world. The false prophet has been whispering in our ear for far too long and selling far too many books in far too many bookstores and online, telling us that God doesn't require anything of us. He just loves us and sent his son and died to die for our sins. And because of that, we're all going to end up in heaven. That's not at all the message of Scripture. To be a follower of Christ is difficult, it's messy, it's ugly, and it is not something that anyone would do who does not love the Lord more than anything else and who holds even a hatred in their heart for anything that would keep them from living in his presence. Bearing his own cross. What cross? What cross does Jesus say? His own. Yours and mine. The cross the Lord gives to each of us to bear. I cannot bear your cross and you cannot bear mine. But by the way, neither can you prevent me from bearing mine and neither can I prevent you from bearing yours. I can help you. And that is a blessing that God puts in his church. That we can help one another to bear our burdens and our crosses. But it's up to you to pick it up and bear it. Nobody else can pick that cross up. It's got your name on it, not mine. It's like Thor's hammer. If I tried to pick up your cross, I couldn't do it, no matter how much I wanted to. You've got to pick it up. You've got to carry this thing. My cross, yes, will be similar to yours. There'll be a a beam that is twice as long as the other and there'll be a cross beam and it'll look like a cross and we'll know what it is. We'll be able to identify it and say, my brother is carrying his cross. I'm going to pray for him that he can continue to carry it. It's going to look similar, but it is going to be different. They'll not be identical. Your cross and mine I pray we'll both point people to Christ, but they will be so different in their uniqueness and in the unique ways ours to bear. My story, my testimony is not yours. There are billions and I can't wait to hear them. I think this is one thing that's gonna make heaven wonderful, by the way, and there are too many to count, but one of them is gonna be hearing everybody's story of how they came to Christ, what he did for them and the unique way that he did. And what he did in their life. My story is unique to yours. God reached down to me when I was 11 years old. He'd watched over me from the time that he created me in my mother's womb. And when that mother left me and went into a, a, a good or bad or ugly, however you want to look at it, and he's watching over me when I was 11 years old, he knocked on my heart and he said, You're lost. God. Did that for me. My story is different from yours. But it is a similar story. Your testimony of salvation. Is different from mine. But both tell the mercy and grace of God. Found through, the, through repentance. Toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Note the verb tense. It's important. Bear his cross. Bear is in the active verb Tense. This is something we do. Some people think that the Christian life is just something that happens to us. Sometimes we get a far distance from God and we're confused and confounded and wonder, God, where are you? And then if you really examine your life, you've not been picking up your cross at all. Not been doing anything. Satan loves an idle Christian. Not picking up their cross. Jesus says, if you don't, you can't be my disciple. Something that we do, we must pick it up and carry it with us while we are here in this world. We are to keep pressing on. Pressing on when the cross we bear threatens to buckle us to our knees. We must continue to strive, to crawl, to move forward to that day when God will take it off of our shoulders and say, Come, you enter, you blessed of my Father, and enter in the rest. And think for a moment about the significance of having the Lord himself present to you the cross he wants you To bear. Maybe he's bringing it to your mind right now. He knows what he's told you. You know what he has told you. There is a cross that you must bear. There is something you must do. You must pick up this cross and carry it and take it. And I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, this is the Lord himself handing it to you and saying, I am giving you this cross. Bear it if you want to be my disciple. And if you hesitate to take it, If you hesitate to pick it up, just look past the shoulders of the Lord. And just beyond him, you'll see the cross he bore for you. Just look past it, just real quick. It's right there. The cross he carried to Calvary. The cross he stretched his arms out. And look upon him and see the nail prints in his hands and in his feet. See the scars across his forehead from the crown of thorns that they place there. See the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As he says, my son, my daughter, here's your cross. I want you to bear it because by bearing it, you'll bring a witness to me and people around you will see and they'll be saved. See the cross and the scars that he endured. See them. See those things and then kneel in obedience and pick up the cross that he gives to you and follow Christ. That's the cost. What is the cross that he is giving to you? Finally, the cost number three, he says in verse 33 we might say just a few things about the verses in between verse 33 so therefore because of this so therefore any one of you there it is again any one any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple what does it mean to renounce all that you have renounce is to willingly give up or set aside what one possesses. And of course, the operative word, willingly. This is not the Lord prying from your hands your possessions. This is not God reaching down into your wallet or into your purse and writing the check. This is not God forcing you to give him what you have yet been unwilling to give. This is not God wrestling you to the ground and forcing you against your will to give him your heart and all that you have. This is you willingly giving it to him. This is you renouncing it. Lord, it's not mine. It's not mine. It's yours. All that I have is yours. What do you require of me? There is a wrong idea that we can sometimes get that if God allows us to have something, that he must want us to have it and that he's okay with us having it. We get awful Calvinistic sometimes in regards to that. Well, if if God didn't want me to have it, I wouldn't have it. Be careful. God gives you things and then he says, renounce it. And you say, well, that's awful. That's a terrible God. Why would I follow such a God? Because the gift he's truly giving to you is eternal life, which so far exceeds any temporary gift he might give you here anyway. Don't you see, the problem is we want to hold on to earthly blessings and forsake heavenly ones. Renounce them. The pulpit commentary on this passage says this. These great multitudes were made up now of enemies as well as friends. Have you ever thought about that? In the crowds that followed Jesus, they weren't all people interested in his success. There were enemies, spies from the Pharisees trying to trip him up. Public commentary goes on. Curiosity doubtless attracted many. The fame of the teacher had gone through the length and breadth of the land. The end, the master well knew, was very near, and in the full view of his own self-sacrifice, the higher and the more ideal were the claims he made upon those who professed to be his followers. He is now anxious at the end, clearly to make it known to all these multitudes, what serving him really signified, entire self-renunciation, a real, not a poetic or sentimental taking up of the cross, when it gets ugly and hard, when you get to that place where you have to say to God, even this? Yes. Even that. These costs must be paid, Jesus says, or you cannot be. My disciple, Listen to him. He says it three times. You cannot be my disciple in verse 27. Verse 26, you cannot be my disciple in verse 33. You cannot be my disciple. It isn't that some are better disciples than others. I think that's important to think about. You know, it's, it's not that there are some disciples that are better than others. There are some disciples who paid the costs and some who haven't. I know that's hard. But these are Jesus' words. You boil all this down and what it means is this. That God refuses to be anywhere but at the top of your list. And I don't care what the list is. God refuses to be anywhere but the top of your list, the top of your priorities, the top of the things that you love, the top of the list of the things that you think about, the top of the list of considerations for the decisions that you make in your life. If you try and place God second on your list, even one B, you will find that he really isn't on the list at all because he refuses to be there. He will not. He's either there on the top or he's not there. This is what Jesus is saying. You must pay this price. This is what it cost me. I didn't kind of come to the world and a little bit in a half human form endure the penalty and the pain of the cross. I came fully as a man. I felt it. Oh, I felt what it is to weep over a grieving or, or over a lost friend and loved one as I stood outside of Lazarus' tomb. I felt the brokenness of disease and le- and leprosy and blindness. I felt the hunger of the human heart that could be filled with nothing that this world has. I came and I gave it all. That was the cost for me, Jesus says. Why would you think it would cost you differently? If you try and place God second on your list, He is not really there at all. When people claim that God is not near, and sometimes we feel that way, the psalmist did. When God was the first on the list, I know that there are times when God is trying and testing and examining us so that we can know what is in our hearts. I know that there are times, but there are others when we feel a distance from God. It's not because he's not far away. It's because we've not picked up our cross. We've not paid the cost. And again, the Greek verb form is important. It's the present active indicative a verb in this form indicates the actuality of a statement it's actually true an action that is happening now and is in reality happening an action that is going on in the present as a matter of fact and reality there's another simple phrase in the active or the present active indicative and it's god loves the world the word loves Present, active, indicative. The word loves is in that same form. It is indicative. It indicates what is true. God loves the world. This helps us unlock, I think, the meaning here of what Jesus is saying. The meaning is that the cost of discipleship is paid now in this moment. And that's why it's binary. Because it's moment by moment. It's day by day. There is a moment when everything changes at the point of salvation. No question about it. Matt John chapter 3, you must be born again, Jesus says to Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be changed and you must have this corruptible turned into incorruptible in your spirit, in your heart, and you must be changed. But the cost of discipleship is paid right now. And it will be paid tomorrow. And it must be paid again the next day. It's a cost that is present, active, indicative. It's actually happening, and it's actually happening right now. And so I ask you, is it actually happening right now in your life? Or is it not? And if it isn't, Jesus says, you can't be my follower." He gives us a few examples, and and I won't belabor these things, but boy, we could. They're such a beautiful picture. Jesus, in verses 28 through 32, gives us two examples. And such a note, there's never been a better teacher than Jesus Christ. He lays out two examples, and he says, who among you is going to build a tower without first counting the cost to see if you've got enough to finish it? I know in today's world, the way we're taught economics, (laughs) that that seems to be normal, but it's foolishness, and folly. It's why our debt, by the way, what is it, $28 trillion, and never be paid. That's not how people used to think. It's how people have been taught to think. And Jesus says to them, who's going to start a building and spend a certain amount of money and not have enough to finish it? Who's not going to count the costs before beginning? And boy, that's salvation. When God comes to you and He convicts you and draws you to Himself... He is going to reveal to you the cost, and that is me or nothing. All of me for all of you or none of me for none of you. I must be what you are willing to love more than anything else in such a way that anything else that would get in between you and me is something that you hate. How many Christians, though, professing at least, and I think even real genuine, there are a lot of unfinished Christians. I'm one. But there are some who are in such a state, they began. Maybe they went to the front of the church. Maybe they repeated the prayer. Maybe they've gone to church all their life. They began, and perhaps they begin, and they begin, and they begin all over, over, and over again. They begin. But when it comes time to pay the costs that the Lord calls for in order to, in reality, be a disciple of Christ, they do not have within them a love for God that overshadows all other things in their life, and they spend their lives unfinished at best and never truly begun at worst. Because Jesus comes and says, These are the costs. And then he gives us this other example of going out to face an enemy fighting a battle and isn't the christian life a warfare isn't it it is for me and when i stop fighting it i find out just how quickly i'll be overrun and jesus uses that analogy he says who what king would face an army of twenty thousand with 10,000, if he didn't know he had the ability to win and be victorious, and if he comes to the conclusion, I don't have enough, he's going to send an envoy, a, a, a group of people, an ambassador, and say to the enemy, what are the terms of peace? I'm willing to, say, I'm willing to uh, compromise here. I'm willing to sue for terms of peace. There are a lot of Christians attempting to fight their spiritual battles without a consideration of the cost that will have to be paid in order to win. Sadly, when many count these costs of discipleship, as Jesus lays them out here, they choose not to pay the costs and they end up seeking terms of peace with the world. What about you? Have you paid the cost? Are you willing to pay them? Or are you seeking terms of peace with the world that hates you? Linsky writes this, we should not insert the thought that this king should not in the first place have allowed things to come to the point of war. This war is inevitable the moment one decides to be a disciple. It's inevitable. It is the devil that will not have such a decision, Linsky says, only by never attempting such a decision, by quietly remaining under Satan... Can we escape war with him? Man, it's so well said. If you if you read commentaries, there are some I would highly suggest Linsky's one of them, especially the gospel of John. But here's such a beautiful thing. Only by never attempting such a decision, the decision to resist and to fight the enemy of our souls, only by never attempting such a decision, by remaining quiet or by remaining quietly under Satan, can we escape war with him? Are you fighting Satan? If the answer is no, then you have sued for terms of peace with him. terms of peace of one who promises things he'll never give in any battle there will be losses i know i'm taking your time and i am going to come to a close but listen in any battle there are going to be losses do you realize that in this spiritual battle of the christian life there are going to be losses even the victor in a battle loses men even the winning army doesn't go home with every father who went to war Even the ones who come back shouting to the hills and the streets of their homes saying we won, there are shouts and there are voices that will never again be heard. In any battle, there will be losses even for the victor. And it is the same in the Christian life. We will suffer losses even when we are victorious. We're going to suffer loss even when we win. But those losses are only temporary. They will be recovered in the future. Those losses that we have here are just that. They're just temporary losses. The irony in our unwillingness to suffer loss in order to follow Christ is this. Losses are inevitable. They're unavoidable. But whether we, whether we follow Christ or not, the differences that follow in Christ leads to all our losses being ultimately turned to more victory. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But one day very soon, every loss will be turned to a victory when God restores all of our losses tenfold But we don't want to pay them these costs here because they seem so steep. They seem unpayable. God, you truly are asking me to renounce everything in my life. Jesus, is that really what you said? And he looks at you with those eyes of love and those hands with the nail scars. And he says, yes yes this is the cost do you see the deliberateness that he's calling you to salvation doesn't happen in some mystical cultish out of mind out of body type thing it's not it he comes and he says count the cost consider them think about them you come to me. You're turning, but you're back on everything else. Count those costs, he says. Consider them. Contemplate them. And then pay them. What cost have you? What cost have you been unwilling to count? Maybe God's hinted. Maybe you've been reading in His Scripture, and you say, "Ooh, ooh." That's something in my life that God wants that I've not given Him. Pay it. Count it. Consider it. Evaluate it. And then pay it. What cost are you unwilling to consider? What cost have you counted and maybe even considered but haven't yet actually paid? Jesus' words must not be ignored. We must not make him say what he does not say. We must not soften the Lord's words to soothe our own hearts, our minds, to pave an easier path of discipleship for ourselves or anyone else. Now, to close, why would you pay such a cost? Why why would anybody in their right mind do this? I'd turn that question right back around and say, why wouldn't anybody in their right mind not do this because i'm not talking about 80 years i was thinking about our nation as you're we driving in today and it's on top of mind no doubt on many people's minds the concerns that we have for her they're real and we should be praying as we have heard requests for our nation and this nation and boy i hope somehow by god's mercy and grace she turns around but let me tell you this, a hundred years from now, you're not going to care about the political problems we're having today. You're just not going to care. But you are going to care about whether you paid the cost of discipleship, whether you know the Lord, whether he is yours and you are his, whether you have come to him and said, as Tozer said, God minus everything, not God plus everything. Have you paid the cost is he yours? He knows and you know. And as I finish, imagine in your mind's eye as Jesus, the Son of God, stops on the road and says, it's time for you to listen. It's time for you to stop walking. And he locks eyes. And he says, if anyone is going to follow me, here are the calls. I beg you to pay him. And if you've paid him and you know him, I beg you to keep paying him every day. And ask God to give you mercy and grace to pay them each day that you awake. Let's have song if we could.